0: Welcome to Someday Is Here, a podcast for Asian American women on leadership and culture. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. This podcast has been created to carve out a space for Asian American women to explore and validate living in both Eastern and Western worlds. Each week we will celebrate our heritage and highlight Asian American history. My guests and I will explore our various Asian-American journeys, both the parts that we are proud of and the parts that have brought pain. We'll discuss practical tips on leadership and our favorite comfort foods, of course. This is a place and a space to bring words and understanding to our shared experience living biculturally. I am so glad you're listening and look forward to your feedback. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Some Days Here, and I, I'm just having the best time ever interviewing the most amazing Asian American women leaders, and have the privilege of interviewing Jenny Yang, my friend, who is all the way in Baltimore. Is that correct? Baltimore, Maryland? Yes, I live in Baltimore, yep. And so I love technology that brings um, thousands of miles down to like, well, in our case, it's face-to-face, because we're on a... a computer, but everyone else will be listening. But Jenny, welcome to Sunday is Now.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Vivian. I've been a friend of yours, a follower of yours, um, someone who's learned so much from you. And I'm so encouraged by the fact that you're doing this. And I was sharing with you earlier that I think for a lot of Asian American women, it is so rare to understand all the impact we're having in all the spheres that we're in. And so the fact that you're highlighting certain women to talk about our journey, to be in the places where we are and learn from each other, I think is so awesome and it's powerful. So thank you for using your your platform and your um, just, yeah, your friendships to, to bring this gift to
0: us. So thank you, Vivian. I, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, me too, me too. Well, I'm trying to think, we probably first met at IF Gathering, is that right? Yes, I
1: think so. And then I think when we met there, we had obviously mutual friends and different overlapping connections and we really instantly hit it off. And and so I think it was it was a good great time of, of connecting together. And um, yeah,
0: it's been great to keep in touch over the over the years since then. <laughs> kind of funny because if they if there was like a little like map of the United States, it's like, okay, we met in Texas and then we met in Atlanta and yeah. then you came out here to California. Oh, and you were yeah. in college. So, we, we just have all these different meetup places across the country. So, yeah. And so, I think
1: when we follow each other on social media or, or, and have that journey together, where we're like, oh, we should meet up here and there. Cause you travel a lot, I travel a lot. And so, it is fun whenever we can make the connection. Cause even I remember, I think the last time we had seen each other, it was, we were in a hotel room for like 30 minutes and we were praying together and that was when you were launching
0: your book
1: and I was so excited. And so any short time with you is, is a good time. So yeah, I'm always grateful whenever we can make that connection.
0: (laughs) Me too. Me too. Well, I would love uh, for you to share with our listeners some of your ethnic journey, like tell, tell me about your Korean American ethnic journey. Yeah.
1: So I, I, that's such an interesting question because I think for me, me being Korean American is, is such a core part of who I am, how I look at the world, and it's formed so much of, of even the work that I'm doing now, even though I never anticipated that it would be. And so, my parents immigrated here when to the United States when I was um, before I was born in the late 1970s, and then I was born in Philadelphia. And then I have an older brother and. And uh we're Philly natives, so which means I'm a diehard Philly sports fan, which means you either love me or hate me. Um but No um, Eagles, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And so um I think being in a household where I knew my parents were immigrants, um, really informed me because it was a challenge and a struggle to understand what it means to be fully American, even though you're from two cultures and where you speak different languages and eat different foods. Um, but I definitely remember never feeling like I was too different from anybody because I went to a Korean church when I was growing up. So that's where I I formed a lot of my Korean, you know, cultural heritage, I would say. And then in school, I never was felt like I was too different from anybody else. Um, But I do remember the first instance of racism I ever experienced was when I was eight, when I went to a, a Lutheran school, private school in Philadelphia, And I was in the playground and someone called out to me as I was walking back to my class, go back to your own country, you chink, is basically what he said. And I was like, I can't, what? Like, what does that mean? And I was completely taken aback um, and I didn't actually know what to do with what happened to me. And so the first thing I did was I went back to my classroom and I told my teacher. And so she told me to sit down and I thought that would be the end of it. But then actually what she did is she... Uh, basically, instead of going on with the lesson, the first thing she did after everyone sat down was say, hey, we're going to do a special exercise today where we're going to talk about why you think it's a value to be in a family that's from another country. And so she never talked about what happened to me. But all these students all of a sudden raised their hand, my peers, my friends, and they said, oh, you can, you know, eat new foods. And another person said, you can travel back to visit your family. Or another person said, you can, you can speak different languages. And by my peers affirming the value of diversity, I was myself affirmed without the Mm -hmm. teacher calling out what was happening to me. And I so appreciated that because I think if the teacher had told the class what had happened to me, I would have been totally embarrassed. But the fact that she affirmed who I was within a setting without necessarily individualizing my experience or me out i thought was something that um i I remember to this day so that teacher's name is mrs olmer and she ended up being the principal of that school and so it was really i think from that time that i realized oh most a lot of people don't like the fact that maybe i'm here because i look different than everybody else and even for my parents when you know their first language is not english and where their my dad was starting a business and Um, they wanted me to be fully American yet not lose my cultural heritage meant that I had to navigate that for myself. And for me, I was always proud of the fact that I was Korean, but I also struggle with it is, is how proud should I be, right? Should I be out there saying I'm Korean and should I speak Korean in school and bring my food to, to lunch, Korean food to lunch? And how much of that should I amplify versus trying to just assimilate and become like all my other peers and lose that cultural identity is something I always struggle with. And so I think my parents, I grew up in a really loving family where my parents always affirmed for me why it was important to keep those values, even though they themselves didn't want to have me be too different than everyone either. Um, And so I think I grew up in a pretty unique household in that my parents were, were Korean, but they were also very Americanized and that they, um, I don't, you know, they, like I did sports and piano lessons and maybe a lot of Korean households did that, but they really gave everything of themselves to me without expecting anything in return. And I remember my dad was a mechanic growing up and he, uh, you know, had his own business in downtown Philadelphia, and I always wanted to like, help out in the garage because a lot of my other Korean American friends were helping their parents with their businesses, either doing the cash register. And it was just a common responsibility. And I never did anything like that. And I always felt like I, I owed something to my parents and I never could pay it forward to them. And still to this day, I that's something I struggle with is I never feel like I can give back to my parents what they afforded to me. And my, my dad actually has a unique, um, a pretty unique story in that he was orphaned during the Korean war. And so he lost his dad when he was about three years old because he was a newspaper journalist and they were killing off media personnel in the beginning of the Korean war. So his father was killed. And then it was just him and his mom and his mother, mother died from an illness when he was seven. And so he was orphaned at the age of seven and he always dreamed of coming to the United States of America. And so when he did, he, was sponsored by the Ford Motor Company and then came to the U.S., was working for Ford, then started his own business. And so my dad is so proud to be Korean, but he's so proud to be American because he loves the U.S. and he feels like it, it rescued him from this desperately poor situation back in Korea where he doesn't have any family. And so he never immigrated. He never even visited Korea for over 30 years because he had nothing to go back to, which I think is a little bit unusual. And it wasn't until a few years ago where he uh, decided to go back to visit, you know, some of his extended family members, but he never wanted to go back. And so I knew from for even my dad that Korea was a source of pain for him as well as a source of struggle. And so I think being in the U.S., being Korean American, I I also grew up going to Korean school on Saturdays. And (laughs) at that time, it was a hassle because I said, why am I spending my Saturdays learning Korean? And now I, I wish my parents were more strict with me to speak Korean to them only, which is a lot of what my friends went through. Because I wish I was actually more fluent in Korean. And I wish I could read and write Korean more than I do now. And you know I have a, a four-year-old boy and a one-year-old boy. My four-year-old's name is David. And he's been in Korean, oh, Korean preschool, actually. And it's been fun watching him appreciate that because he is also starting to understand that he is Korean. And I think about this because for my parents who were immigrants, they, you know, it was a challenge for them because they didn't speak English fully well. And for me, I, I speak English fluently. I'm able to communicate, I think, more with my son in that language as a common language together. Mm-hmm. And I start thinking like, how much of that is, how much of that is going to impact my son when he sees me as you know, fully Korean American versus for me and my parents, they were immigrants. And I think um, the struggle for them making it in this country was such a significant part of my upbringing. And I never want my kids to forget that struggle because I think when they forget that struggle, they become too comfortable to feel like the things that they have, it came out of sacrifice, right? And, mm. um, and I think that's, that's something I, I think about a lot for the Asian American experience in general, which is you know, because of so much of our um, family struggle that it, it's allowed us a lot of opportunity. And I think with that opportunity comes responsibility to, to love our neighbors, to serve um, individuals in our communities. And I just hope we don't get too comfortable or too, too, um, too enamored with the idea of the American dream. Because I think sometimes that can lend itself to us not fully engaging with, with the hurts and challenges that our families struggle with. Um, and that can form, our, I think, our character, right, is that resilience that we need to to really um, to do different things in different spheres.
0: Wow. So going back to your Lutheran school, that private school that you attended, was it predominantly white or was it a mixed class or what was it like?
1: Yeah, it was predominantly white. It was, um, I would say there was a good number of African-Americans and Asian-Americans. I don't remember other. Other races, but um, but yeah, it was predominantly white, I would say. But um, I don't think I was the only one. And um, again, this wasn't from my classmates; it was from some. Um, there was a little boy in another class that was like waiting in line to go in from recess, and then I was in my class, and then it was as I was going in that he like hurled this insult at me. Mm. But and when I think about it, I'm like, wow, at eight years old, they're already picking up on. I mean, how do we even know the language to say something like that, or even? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Identify me as not belonging at that age, and um, and I, I imagine that it, even now it's perhaps happening at a younger age too. But um, but it's something even when I think about my own kids, I I I'm always trying to talk to them about being proud of being Korean and why mm-hmm. that's so important. And so I'm Korean, but my husband is Chinese, so my kids are half Korean and half Chinese. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting because my son is familiar with Korean because he's in that Korean preschool but we went to california to visit my husband's family who's chinese and you know they speak chinese and, and he you know sometimes he laughs because he thinks it sounds funny and when my, my father-in-law asked my son hey you know are you are you chinese he's like no i'm not chinese <laughs> like, are you Korean? He's like, yeah, I'm Korean. He's like, are you American? I'm like, yeah, I'm American. But he refused to accept the fact that he was Chinese, which I was like, oh gosh, we have so much to work on. <laughs> and So so even that's a little bit comical, but I think understanding the value of being both Chinese and Korean for my son, I think it's going to be really important as he grows up as well. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the the, t- the conversation these days is around China being this hegemonic power and, you know, Chinese goods and all these things. And there's almost a negative connotation with it. And Even for like Koreans and Japanese, a lot of people assume that we're, Ch- we're Chinese. Mm. And so we're like, oh no, we're Korean as if being Chinese is a bad thing or something like that. So uh, teaching my child that actually you should be proud that you're Chinese too. And, and um, what does that cultural identity mean for him is all something that I'm... I'm um,
0: learning through as as a mom as well that is so well i so we have some dear friends same thing the mom is korean the dad's chinese you mm-hmm. know so growing up um and looking and you know for m- my husband is half japanese quarter portuguese and quarter hawaiian so we have mm-hmm. you know a a blending and mixed race and so the kids are always trying to navigate that but i'm curious how have you seen differences between Chinese culture and Japanese culture in your marriage?
1: Oh, Chinese culture and Korean culture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, well, uh, I think it was, it's, it's been interesting in that my, my husband, Phil, uh, his family, they're Chinese Taiwanese actually. I mean, my husband was born in Taiwan. And then my family, I think our values are very similar. So we're very family oriented and, our, neither of our parents had issues with the fact that we married people outside of our race were close with our siblings and um and things like that and so i don't know i think there's i mean there's always interesting things about each culture i think in the korean american culture there's a lot of emphasis on image and the brand of cars you drive or the brand of clothing you wear um I think that's especially tied to the Korean like, ch- church community. It's like very so- social. Um, and I think in the Chinese community, um, I don't know if it's a cultural difference, but I would say, um, you know, Phil and I are both Christian and then a lot of uh, his parents are not Christian and then his sister is Christian, but his brother is not. And so I think that's added an interesting dynamic. More, That's more of a religious difference than a cultural difference, I would say. Um, And so, for example, Phil's mom is Buddhist. And so she goes to a Buddhist temple, you know, pretty regularly to serve there, doing community service projects and things like that. And so I think that's been more of a kind of cultural difference, I guess, Um, more than I feel like there's been any distinctive value difference between our families. Um, I would say that I think being from different cultures means that for example, a few years ago, I took my family, my parents, and then Phil took his parents, and we took a trip to China and to Korea together. So our parents yeah. get along. I know it's it's unusual. People are like you're traveling with in laws, but they're very respectful, very cordial, very friendly. Again, similar values, upbringing. So so we went to Korea first, and then we went to China together. And so it was, it's been a lot of fun actually. And they you know they speak English together and. You know, we laughed together and then we went to california my parents went came out with us and then spent some time with phil's parents and so that was really nice as well and so i think because there were so similar family values there that it didn't lead to a lot of lot of clashes between the cultures but um, i do think that it's actually lent itself to a richer diversity i think within our families because at least my kids can experience the richness of both both cultures. And I think there's a lot more common between the Asian cultures than uncommon, like respecting your elders, um, adhering to certain traditions like the New Year or the, the Lunar New Year and things like that, that traditionally are just important. And, you know, my kids get the Red envelopes full of money, which I never got when I was a kid as a Korean, but because it's a tradition, that's a big thing. They get money now; they're excited about that. So there's oh. things like that they get to experience. But obviously, with my family, which they see more often because we're so um, they're closer from Baltimore and Philly, where my parents still live, that they get exposed to more Korean culture than. Than the Chinese culture, but it is something we're telling them to embrace more fully.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The best of both worlds, right? (laughs) Best of both worlds. And you know, one thing that I have really uh, admired and respected about you and Phil and how you've parented together is really seeing how you have, as much as possible, Brought your kids along with you in all your travels. So you know, as you are working as the vice president of advocacy and policy at World Relief, I mean, there's a lot of travel that you do. You're all over the place, and I know you travel alone at times, and you know, send you know photos of your kids with your parents and all that. But I do see you traveling quite a bit with your kids. Mm-hmm. So when we saw each other at the hotel room, you know, the the two queen beds are pushed together into one giant bed. <laughs> <and suddenly laughs> Right, <laughs> so, but I just think that's such a picture of the value of family. The mm-hmm. and I, I see that in my Hispanic, you know, brothers and sisters as well. Like you know, extended family is just a part of the norm. Yeah, and this is just kind of how we do it. You know, so yeah. um, I love that. I love seeing that lived out. So
1: yeah, it is. It is hard because I think with Phil and I, we do have a real partnership in that because I travel a lot for work, I travel oftentimes by myself. And in fact, I've, I've looked at my calendar over the past several years. My son just turned four in August. And when I've spent collectively maybe three months apart from him from the time he was born. And and it's a lot of time if you think that you know he's only four. And so these days, whenever I can... And I do try to travel with both my kids, and so I went to Australia and Hong Kong with my my four month old, actually Joel, and then with David, I've you know we were just in Chicago, and uh, and we we were in other places as well, and so it's hard because if I don't travel with them, I I don't get to see them, and I also want to have I want my kids to know the work that I'm doing, and so I'm explaining to him, you know, why I'm helping refugees and immigrants and why, you know, why it's so important for us to serve our, our vulnerable neighbors and care about the communities that God has placed us in. And even when we, we do these um, nighttime prayers is, is encouraging him to pray, not just for ourselves, but for people that, that we know that are, are hurting or, and my son always prays. He says, I pray for everyone in every town, in every city, everywhere. And wow. has, like, and he's a very compassionate little kid. And for him to have that heart is really telling and I think it's because he's he's always been meeting a lot of new people all the time and he enjoys that part of it as well. And so so anytime I, I can travel with my kids, I I try to do so because a lot of times I, I can't and I I don't um you know I,
0: I miss them all the time when, when I'm not with them as well. Mm-hmm. So true. So true. <laughs> I love that. Well tell me, I'd love to hear like how like with the work that you currently do, how mm-hmm. have Growing up as the daughter of immigrants shaped or informed your decisions. And how did you come come into working for World Relief and being an advocate for the marginalized?
1: Yeah. So, um, so I've been at World Relief actually, which is a humanitarian organization that serves the vulnerable through the local church overseas, doing humanitarian assistance, and then in the U.S., we provide immigrant legal services and actually resettled refugees. So I've been at World Relief for 15 years, actually. And so I originally started in the refugee settlement program. And then now I've been doing advocacy and policy work. So liaising with the U.S. government to understand legislation and policy changes that they're looking to make and then and sharing that information with our constituents and with churches in particular so that they can be educated and mobilized to raise their voice on, on these particular issues. And so, growing up, I I always wanted to be like a journalist because I really like writing. I love reading. And in in college, I actually studied international relations, which is an interdisciplinary field where I talk. I studied politics and history and economics. And I remember when I studied abroad in Spain, my junior year in college, I it was the first time where I was living as a resident in another place, and. There, I actually um, met a lot of African migrants that were coming into Spain that were really facing, you know, blatant instances of racism there, Um, and you know, even Spain itself was struggling to 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 know what to do with these asylum seekers. And so that summer, I volunteered at an anti-racism organization. I also volunteered at the UN, where I started understanding and learning about asylum laws, so legal protections for for these individuals that I was meeting, and really from that. Uh, really seated a deep desire in my heart to, to continue to work with refugees, because you know, these are individuals who are considered some of the most vulnerable people in the world. They are fleeing from circumstances which they did not choose and going to places where they often feel unwelcome. And what does it mean for us as a community to recognize that knowing it really could happen to any of us? And afford mm-hmm. these individuals proper protection and welcome. And especially for me being a Christian as well, I know that this is something that would compel, that God would, you know, ex- explicitly states in scriptures would what, what we want us to do as well. And so it really began this journey for me of, um, I worked actually in politics for a little bit. Right after college, I did political consulting for a lot of elected officials in Maryland and then I loved that in the beginning, and then I hated it at the end because I was doing campaigns for like sixteen-hour days. I was working on weekends, traveling all over. And as a young, you know, mid twenties person, I all my friends were having fun, and I was just working all the time on these campaigns. And so um, I knew I wanted to transition to to doing something with with refugees, which is an area in which I always wanted to work in. And I was gonna leave Baltimore and go to New York or DC. And then I just felt like I was supposed to stay in Baltimore. Um, And so my friends at that time uh, actually worked, a few of my friends worked at World Relief and they encouraged me to apply for a job there. And so I was like, I don't know if I want to stay in Baltimore, but I'll just apply for a job. And then when they call me for a job opportunity, uh, that's when I found out that they work with refugees, which is exactly what I was looking for. And so Mm -hmm. it really started my journey of being at this organization where we are serving vulnerable people all around the world and in the U.S. And that's what I love about the organization that we do work both overseas and in the U.S. And it's really at World Relief where I began to understand more about the global refugee crisis and how what we can do to respond and really um, understanding the importance of, of, of advocacy as well, which is you know, we can care about our neighbors on an individual level, but if there's systemic issues that are perpetuating injustice and we have to change systems and structures as well and so that's really became, became a passion of mine which is you know, how can we use our voice to change um, unjust laws or, or, or policies and how can we continue to elevate our voice in the public square so that we're influencing people who are in really powerful positions that are making key decisions that impact all of our communities. And so, um, and I would say, especially as um, as a follower as a follower of Christ, that there's for me even a more compelling impetus as well. In that, I do think a lot of what we say in the public square is a reflection of what we believe about the gospel itself. And I think um, you know there are so many values about loving our neighbor and loving the world that Jesus talks about that I think are are important in how we speak in the public square and 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 how we approach the work, the works, the work that God is calling us to do, and so those are all aspects of, of what I think about when I um, engage in the work that I do.
0: Mm. Well, I love um, all that you're doing, and we will link up World Relief and um, all the your the book that you co wrote, and all of all of that resources um, in the show notes. I'm um, curious as you have been in these different sectors, whether it's political, um, you know, in an organization, working internationally, um, seeing different people in different places. Do you have any leadership principles, um, or leadership lessons that kind of direct you or, you know, serve to be your North star or, um, what you hope to be like, or what you try to implement in your own leadership?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's been amazing to see my career, I would say at World Belief, because I've every few years, I've taken on new leadership responsibilities. And I think it's due to my passion and my expertise. It's become my expertise in this area of migration and refugees. And, um, um, you know, I've always, it's interesting because I am at a faith-based organization, but at the same time, I think I've always struggled with the fact that Uh, sometimes the positions I'm called to seem almost too big for me. And I feel like sometimes I'm underqualified or we often talk about the imposter syndrome, which is, am I really supposed to be here? And I think of when I'm in a boardroom with mostly older white males, I think, Oh my gosh, if my parents saw this, they would be like floor because who is Jenny that as a young Asian woman that she's in this room full of really important older white males like who are they and who is she and (laughs) um and so I'm like no that's I mean obviously there's things that I'm doing and 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 things like that and so I always think in leadership you know humility goes a long way because it expresses to the people we work with that none of us have all the right answers and we always have to work within a team and in collaboration with each other to get the best strengths from each other and so i think i whenever i see someone who is always curious and learning no matter who you are or or your experience but is always willing to learn from one another i think that's a huge strength of leadership because it means that you don't have all the answers and that that it really requires a team to oftentimes i think make some of the best decisions and come up with the most creative solutions as well and um um and the one thing that i've always hung on to um uh that's been a, a encouragement to me is that uh, there's a saying uh where it says god doesn't call the equipped he equips the called mm-hmm. and i love that because i think sometimes we can feel like we don't have the right skills or experiences to do the things that we're doing but i feel like if um you know my faith of god is calling me to to do something. And it's very clear that he's opened this door for me that I should step into it with a faith that he will equip me to, to do the things he's called me to do without necessarily feeling like I'm inadequate to do that, um, to do that specific function. Um, and then the other thing I would also say is that I think um, we should always try to do the big things, but not be disencouraged when those big things don't happen and take small steps towards that. And a lot of, uh, people, young people, especially I've talked with have said, you know, I, I want to change the world and I want to eliminate poverty and do all these things, but I just don't know how to get there. And I always say, start small because, uh, even if you, if you have an organization that you, love, but you, you feel like you're not qualified or you haven't gotten a job there, well, just intern there or volunteer there because that's your foot in the door. And if they get to know you and they like you, that'll you'll be at the top of the list when they are looking to hire someone. And even if, even if it's not the exact job you want, if you get a job that's according to the things that you're qualified to do, but then you prove yourself, then that can open the door for you to do other things. And so I always tell people, yes, expect to do big things, but don't um, be disappointed if you need to start somewhere small because those small steps of faithfulness really lead to um, op- more open doors for you um, as you're faithful in the smaller things. And so I think that's another valuable lesson in leadership as well, which is don't feel like you're too above your britches to to really um, do different things that will qualify you to do bigger things in the future. Um, so even you know if you're in your 40s or 50s and something interests you, you know, even then like volunteer at different organizations because you're never too old to start something new or to partner with others that have the same interests as you and and really build yourself um, in that way.
0: Those are such nice words. You know what it really strikes me about the first thing that you're talking about regarding humility and collaboration. I think women, uh, especially women in leadership, I think that we just naturally, because we're so relationally like Typically it's a generalization, but we are um, more relationally based mm-hmm. and less driven possibly. <laughs> but I think the, the, the value of leadership and collaboration is really the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially with so much technology and knowledge just at our fingertips, we can Google anything at any given moment. Um, to me, it's also this beautiful marrying of um, Asian American values too. So mm-hmm. as an Asian, American women, I, I can see how that that um, as you are entering these spaces, when you meet someone who has humility and teachability and a desire to collaborate, that that really resonates with a lot of our our um, ethnic upbringing as well, too. You know, there's just a yeah. you know that's the that we are collective rather than individualistic.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think part of that too is is knowing that uh, there is. Um, that, yeah, we can learn from each other. But at the same time, I think um, that community-based understanding and teamwork decision-making is going to continue to be important. And a lot of big NGOs, even at World Relief, we used to have one person who was president and CEO. And now we have two individuals. One is the president, one is the CEO. And I think it's just an acknowledgement or even churches that are being co-pastored by two people. Um, so that it's not all, all in one person or that person becomes a figurehead who can do no wrong. I think those are all things that people are maybe, um, moving away from That's not all the time, but, um, in specific circumstances. And so I think that continued collaboration, um, as much as possible is, I think has real value.
0: Oh, well, I totally agree. Well, I love that. We could talk about that for days. Yes. <laughs> I will turn like the conversation. I would love to hear, Jenny, what is your favorite Asian comfort food? Oh, yes. Um,
1: I would say um, Korean. My mom makes this really amazing dakuk, um, um, which is basically like boiled. Uh, my mom uses oxtail, like oxtail soup, and it creates this, like really thick, rich white broth. And then she adds like sliced rice cake to it, and then um, and she always makes it. So she literally boils this pot of this broth outside, actually, um, for like 24 hours. And then when it gelatinizes, when you put it in the refrigerator, it literally becomes this like gelatin, like a Jello, because it's so thick. And my kids love it. I love it. And so whenever I go home, uh, I my mom always makes that. And so like we freeze like quarts of it um in those plastic quarts and then and then whenever i'm making a soup for my kids or want something myself i'll always thaw that and and make that so that is my ultimate asian comfort food but my husband and i are both we love food and so we will travel for food our whole travel <laughs> itineraries revolve around where we're going to eat. And I'm not kidding when I say we will literally go to someplace just to eat at a certain restaurant. <laughs> and we don't go places necessarily to go to museums. We go places literally just to eat at their food places. So like even when we go back to California, all of our days are spent saying, okay, this is what we're going to eat. And we're we going to New
0: York. This is what we're going to eat. <laughs> so we love food. <laughs> like I shared earlier, my husband's from Hawaii and mm-hmm. we have, actually gone back to Hawaii and not even made it to the beach, but yeah. we have like our little, like, this is where we're going to get the poke, and this is where we're going to get the halpia pie, and this is where we're going to get, you know, it's like the, the stops for the food, like we eat around the island.
1: Yeah, it's got a way to do it. And Phil and I got really lucky because Phil's mom cooks really well, good Chinese food, and then my mom cooks really well, really good Korean food. And so be, both of us have been trying to learn from them about, um, you know, how we can acquire their skills or learn their recipes. And it's one of those things I think most Korean moms, they don't have recipes. It's all in their head. So they just throw things together. Yeah. yeah. So trying to write it down. And it's always so good. But there's never exact measurements, which is the challenge. So, But I have been trying to learn from my mom because I know if for my kids when they grow up that that's something that they're going to really appreciate as well. Um, mm. my kids love Korean food. So they love that, that um, that my mom makes. And then uh, they have a good palate for Chinese food as well, since my husband cooks um, some good dishes as well.
0: So it's, it's a fun food journey for our family. <laughs> for sure, For sure. Well, um, I was thinking about your two boys and them growing up as Korean Chinese. Um, uh, what are some of your hopes for them of what you would hope that they would be able to learn from you and Phil, that they would then pass on to their own children one day.
1: Yeah. So I think about this a lot because I think starting from their generation. So with me, um, I had direct, you know, my parents were immigrants and I understood their struggle day to day of making it in this country. So my kids is really the first generation where they're not day to day with the struggles of having parents who where English isn't their first language or where they're navigating a culture because I was born here and I was raised here. Um, and so I'm very mindful of teaching my kids what my parents went through to make it here, um, telling them about my parents' experience of being immigrants, of having them be very proud of the fact that they are uh, from two, two races, two cultures, and to be very proud of that. And I think, um, I think for my parents, when they were navigating being immigrants, they struggle with, you know, how much should I push my kids to be Korean because I want them to be American. And I think that was something they, they struggle with. But for me, being a Korean American and, and being fully born and raised in this country, I feel like I can really push my kids towards being fully Korean and Chinese and giving them maybe some tools to be able to handle like when racist epithets are going to be hurled away, which is, is likely inevitable and, and having them respond to it really well and saying, you should never be ashamed of the fact that you're this because it, it, it look at all these values you're learning, this cultural heritage that you have that a lot of people don't have. Mm-hmm. And I think I want my parents to understand what my parents went through. Um, I also want them to like be proud of their language and culture and because, um, you know, I've, I really feel like if they don't learn it, it's going to be lost after this generation because they're going to be so far removed from my parents' immigrant experience that they're going to not understand that experience at all. And so even now, I, I try to, my parents actually come down every other week to help me watch my little one. They love spending time with my family. My, my kids love it when we're at my parents' house and they have a huge backyard and they play outside all the time. And like having my parents spend as much time with my kids as possible is something I treasure because in that experience, they, they learn about my parents and what they've been through. And I think as they get older, I mean, they're only four and one now, but as they get older, I think I want them to ask questions and I want them to to talk to my parents about some of the things that um, that interest them about their lives um, and then really have that be a core part of, of their upbringing as well. And so, um, I, I mean, it's funny because my husband speaks Chinese, but he doesn't speak it at home. So I've been egging him, like, you have to speak Chinese to our kids. He's like, no, like, he refuses to do it. <laughs> so they're only close to Korean, but um, I do think growing up, having them be in a Korean school, not just to learn the language, but be in a community where, the, you know, there, there are other Koreans or other Chinese is something I'm thinking through. And then also, again, spending as much time with my parents as possible is something that I'm going to value as well um, for them to to really fully embrace that.
0: that And the food always helps, you know, because
1: if you have good Korean food and good Chinese food, that's a huge part of loving that culture, right? So, so uh, they're very lucky in that they have two grandmas that really cook really well. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: they're spoiled in that way (laughs) I love it I love seeing your videos of you know the kids slurping their noodles or just devouring something amazing and yeah yeah.
1: it's funny my son his favorite food my four-year-old son David is clams and octopus and oysters and shrimp like literally that's all he asked for so like whenever we're somewhere and we will go to restaurants that just have clam buckets because he'll order a bucket of clams and that's all he eats um, and so my dad loves seafood. I think a lot of Koreans love seafood and they'll eat any and all kinds of seafood. And my son's the same way. And so I think he likes seafood because so much of Korean cooking involves some form of seafood, like fish or like um, mussels, clams um, in different uh, ways. And so he definitely, I think, got that from my dad. <laughs> and, uh, and my little one, I don't know what his palate's going to develop into, but
0: but at least my older one has has that developed palette, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's so good. That's so good. My mouth is watering. It's lunchtime. I'm ready to yes. eat <laughs> That's so great. That is so great. Well Jenny, how can people connect with you? Um, yeah, I would love to hear any in any way that you connect with people and how yeah. they can connect. Yeah, sure. So
1: my Instagram is, it's personal. So I actually post a lot of pictures of my family, which I, I think my kids are really adorable. So people love watching what they're doing and they have just fun personalities. So they love dancing and music and um, they're very talkative and just funny kids. So um, that handle is at Jenny Yang 318. So it's J-E-N-N-Y-Y-A-N-G 318. And again, I post a lot of family pictures, but then I'll also post stuff about my work and other things that are going on. Um, my Twitter handle is at uh, Jenny Yang W-R. So for world belief, so it's J E N N Y Y A N G W R And Twitter is where I don't do anything personal. It's all new stuff or like policy updates, um, news articles that people should read, events that I'm going to, things that I'm speaking at and conference that I'm going to that I'm tweeting out about. So you can follow me there. Or you can just... Um, Uh, from me on Facebook I also have a Facebook public page which I don't use that much but you can like that as well so it's (laughs) Jenny Huang Yang so Jenny Huang is my maiden name H-W-A-N-G and my last name is Y-A-N-G so Jenny Huang Yang is my my Facebook page so yeah I look forward to connecting there and then World Relief you can follow us on all the social media feeds at World Relief on every all the platforms, and there is where I, I do a lot of um, updates about the various issues that I'm, I'm working on. We do a lot of action points for for people to um, uh, make calls or donate or raise your voice or share information. And so, World Relief is the, the organizational platform through which I'm doing a lot of my work as well. So, please you know follow follow us along there um, as we're updating about humanitarian situations overseas, but also in the U.S., what's happening around immigration, which has been, which I think will always be a hot topic in the U.S. <laughs> yes,
0: and, and, you know, on that note, too, I'm curious and would love, you know, for, um, there's so much confusion, <clears throat> and it, today, and especially as we are moving into an election season and all that, could you share with listeners maybe a few resources that might be helpful that would Help provide a balanced or a more accurate um, summary of what's happening, like just a good entry point for someone who wants to learn. Because it's like if I just go out into Twitter Twitterverse, um, it's just a dumpster fire, and it's hard to sort through who to trust and what to know is fake news or what you know, whatever. So, from your yeah, from your experience and from your vantage point, what would you? How would you direct People in the US with the immigration conversation, like some maybe some starting points to learn more. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, the name of the book that I wrote, Welcoming the Stranger, with my co author Matthew Sorens, it's also a website. So you can go to welcomingthestranger.com. And through the book, we really try to provide a very basic um, knowledge base for how to think about immigration. So we go into the history of immigration to the U S we go into what the current laws say. We share personal stories of impacts that we've gotten to know. Uh, we've also shared um, for those who are Christians, a biblical perspective on, on immigration as well. Um, and then we provide resources and tools for people to engage. So the book is a good primer. Um, if you go to welcome in stranger.com, there's also resources around Uh, learning guides and toolkits. And then um, actually, I think a lot of your listeners would be interested in a campaign called Welcome. And if you go on Facebook, it's Welcome Period. And there's a lot of information about sermons and learning guides and and documentary films that uh, we produce that talk about, um, especially as women, how we can engage in this conversation. And so, for example, Welcome um, is going to be releasing a, a documentary Uh, with several women who went to Mexico, Oaxaca, and then actually met with migrant women there. It's a really eye-opening account of of what they experienced. And so if you use uh, Welcome on Facebook, it's a really good community of women who are on this journey together. And um, I would also say just, again, with World Relief, we're always posting information about ways that you can get involved and we're responding publicly to different policy changes. And so, mm-hmm. following along with World Belief, we'll always, you know, post something on Instagram or on Facebook or, or Twitter around um, our public positioning around these issues. So I, I think it is really important to follow organizations that are trusted, either service providers or advocacy organizations that will always reference um, information that is nonpartisan, um, mm-hmm. so that it's not tainted necessarily by a political viewpoint necessarily, but is really tainted, but is Presented in a way that reflects val- certain values that people hold, and so um, so I would encourage people. Um, we relief obviously, is is one of the main organizations responding to refugees and asylum seekers in the U.S. But then there's probably some others. Like the IRC is a great organization that always does calls to action. That is, um, you know, one of the largest NGOs in the world, and there's some others as well that are putting out really good information around. <clears throat> refugees and immigrants in the U.S. And I would also encourage folks, um, especially for those of us who are Asian American in this space that, you know, I think sometimes there's a tendency to shirk away from our identity and not get engaged. And I felt like that for a long time because I said, when I engage on immigration, people are going to discount my voice because they're just going to think I'm in it for personal reasons. And they're going to say, oh, of course she's saying something on immigration because she's Korean American and she benefited from it. But I realized that actually there's more power in my story, being the daughter of Morgan than from someone who's <clears throat> doesn't have that lived lived experience. And so, I think you know it's not a discount to the fact that you're personally impacted or that you've had that personal experience. It's actually a huge, powerful aspect of your testimony and your witness to able to reflect on your story as a reason for why you care about certain policy or political issues. So, you know, don't shy away from for being bold about speaking about your experience because I did that in the beginning but then I became I realized that for me to connect with the audiences I was speaking to and even talk forcefully about why I think it's important it all came from the fact that I myself was impacted by it that wasn't a political or policy issue it was a personal issue so don't shy Mm -hmm. away and the, the ability for us to share our stories is the power of our voice and the power of our witness and so I would really encourage folks to stay engaged in that and really um, lean into our identities fully because I think that's that's what creates open doors for us to really share our stories as, as effectively as possible out there.
0: Well, that's excellent. Thank you so much. I just admire and respect and am cheering you on. I think this is hard, hard work, but worthwhile because it's people's lives that are at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so much respect and gratitude for you Jenny for your example your leadership your heart and um for for being being in it and yeah
1: well thank you Vivian I've counted you a friend and uh whenever we meet we'll have to go out and get some good Korean food or some other other food and um yeah thank you again for bringing this these this platform together and and using your voice in so many different ways encourages so many people. So thank you so much for being, I appreciate
0: it. Well, it's been great to have you, Jenny, and I can't wait for everyone to continue to get to know you and your great work. So thanks for being on. Thanks for being. Thank you for joining us this week on Some Days Here. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment and subscribe to the show so that each new episode automatically downloads to your device every week. And thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. We would love for you to rate and review the show so that others can find out about us. A special thank you to the brilliant team that makes Sundays Here possible. The Sundays Here logo is designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Productions. Show notes on the website are by Vicki Pham. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. The Director of Design and Website Designer is Kenny Wong. And the Executive Producer is Chantelle Reynolds. Have a great week. And we look forward to you joining us again for another episode of Someday is Here.